0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about violent extremism and the threats coming from within the United States, we have with us Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris who is a professor at American University School of Public Affairs and School of Education, Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology. Um, She's the director of research for the Center for University Excellence at American University and director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at AU. I also want to say AU is one of my alma maters. I got my journalism degree there in grad school, and it's a fantastic place. So, Cynthia, welcome.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So you put together an op-ed in the New York Times uh, last week, and it was called America's most urgent threat comes from within. You talked about U.S. counterterrorism focusing on fringe extremists, for example, 9-11, the 9-11 perpetrators, and that we were vastly unprepared for a threat from our mainstream. Can you tell us a little bit about the op-ed, why you wrote it and how you came to the conclusions you came to?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, so I have been basically, in many ways, I feel like I've been saying the same thing for a long time. So I wrote the op-ed because an editor heard me talking about those points at a talk and and invited the op-ed. And I thought this is a great opportunity to sort of reach a bigger and different audience. So it seemed like a really good thing to do. I was delighted to have the opportunity to do it and to really be able to get some arguments into a national security conversation that is often dominated and tends to be very dominated by intelligence and security perspectives rather than the perspective that I come at it from, which is, which is really an education and public health and social work kind of perspective, a different set of experts that need to be a part of the conversation. So, you know, not arguing that that's the only approach, but that we're going to need many hands on deck to kind of address this problem and in ways that are really different from the violent challenges that we faced in the past.
0: So I want to get to your core recommendation in the op-ed in a second, which is that we need to address extremism, especially extremism from within, as a public health problem. But before I do, I want to ask you a little bit about the pathways that you're seeing people radicalize now and how they've drastically shifted. What does your research tell us? Well,
1: there are a number of different things that we're seeing, I think, that are important to point out about how extremism itself is changing and how extremist groups are changing and also the extent to which extremist ideas or things that we would previously have thought of as fringe extremist ideas have made their way into the mainstream in different ways. And so those are two separate but related issues. So on the one hand, you know, the vast majority of political violence and the threats of political violence that we're faced with today are not coming from organized groups themselves, right? From clearly bounded groups that have hierarchies of leadership and chains of command that can be infiltrated or... Worked through cultivated informants and surveilled and monitored, which are really the kind of traditional counterterrorism strategies. It is really both the so called lone actor or lone wolves, which is a term a lot of people don't like and I don't love either because it implies that they're completely isolated when in fact they're often very well networked online. But these individual actors who commit violent terrorist acts like in a Pittsburgh synagogue or an El Paso Walmart that have no extremist group affiliations whatsoever, but have been radicalized through content online that they encountered, often in ways that are also different from previous generations where extremism, extremist content really was a destination for people. They had to seek out, they had to sign up for a newsletter, they had to go with a buddy to a backwoods militia gathering and, and you know, do some initiation rights and join up with a defined group.
0: You actually had to join a group like the KKK in order to get access to their ideology.
1: Right. You For the most part, you had to either sign up and become a card-carrying member of a group or at least... Register for a newsletter from somebody—a literal newsletter that would come in the mail. So you'd receive propaganda that you had sought out. Of course, people were being recruited; they're being introduced. But it's really a one-to-one kind of situation through networks of friends, uh, personal contacts, for the most part. Now, you know, wherever you are online, I always say it's a sort of like just a few clicks away from an ever-expanding rabbit hole of, of disinformation and propaganda and hate and harassment. That I assume you know, virtually everybody's going to encounter it at some point. And so it's, you know, how you react to it once you encounter it. Most people won't be persuaded by it because they've had other experiences in their lives that let them recognize that for what it is. But some propaganda is more persuasive than others. Some disinformation, as we have seen, is more persuasive than other kinds of disinformation. And so, first of all, people are accessing that and becoming radicalized in totally new ways. But they are also... Increasingly, we're seeing moments of violence come spontaneously around events like January 6 from actors who had no previous ties to extremist groups. So only 16, sometimes 17 percent. It depends on the number of arrests at any given moment. But about 16, 17 percent of the people arrested so far for the criminal acts at January 6th had any kind of ties to extremist groups or affiliations. Most people had no previously known affiliations, although they have clearly encountered mass amounts of disinformation and propaganda. But those people were very violent, some of them, on that day, wielding sometimes quite spontaneously fire extinguishers or flagpoles or turning ordinary objects into weapons in ways that showed that people can be quite spontaneously mobilized to violence. That's a much tougher set of things to tackle with tools that were designed you know, to quite effectively counter very bounded, hierarchically organized cells that report to a structure of a chain of command of leaders and have a clear manifesto and membership lists. Um, it's just really different to try to counter with intelligence or surveillance these other more amorphous kinds of radicalization.
0: Because this is a group of decentralized people who are not necessarily part of an organization that are being radicalized over the internet by themselves and maybe connecting with some people anonymously on message boards and things like that. You just don't have the kind of groups that you can infiltrate the way you once did, as as I take it, the overarching issue.
1: Exactly. And I don't even think that the individuals who become violent see themselves as, you know, sometimes they see themselves as part of a group, but that um, that even changes, and their objectives change in the moments that they become violent. So, you know, on January six, we had this really strange coalition in ways that you really we started to see during the pandemic earlier at state capital protests, but. You know, a strange coalition of Proud Boys, QAnon conspiracy theorists, white supremacists, unlawful militias and ordinary Trump voters who all kind of came together in one cohesive action that day that wasn't planned that way and then separated again. I mean, they normally don't get along. They're quite fragmented, those groups. And so we're also seeing these, you know, that that level of violence, that many people wouldn't have necessarily been anticipated If you just looked at those individual groups one on one, including the big mass of voters, because they were not thought to have that kind of violent capability.
0: I thought it was fascinating in your in your piece for The Times, you cite one study that says a majority of the arrested January 6th attackers were employed and some of them were teachers, chief executives, veterans, doctors, lawyers, and they had an average age of, of 40 years old.
1: It's a really interesting and not totally surprising kind of finding, either though. You know, a couple there are a couple different things I think that are worth unpacking there. One is that we do actually generally see that most people who are attracted to far right extremism are not unemployed. Right? In fact, you're not more likely to join the far right. Research shows if you are unemployed. But what's really interesting, there's one study I often cite that shows in Europe that you are more likely to join the far right if you grew up in a household with an unemployed parent so You know, I often describe this, and I didn't get into this in the op ed, but as the experience, it's more of an emotional state of precariousness, an experience of feeling like something could be lost or something could be taken away. That can make people very vulnerable to propaganda that says something is being taken from you, whether that's Second Amendment rights or a white majority country or a stolen election. You hear these same kinds of themes again and again about loss and things being taken away and that you're entitled to, that you think you're entitled to. And so I think some of what we saw there, there was one Washington Post study shortly after January 6th that showed that a a surprisingly high number of those arrested had had prior experiences with bankruptcies or tax liens or evictions, sometimes going all the way back to childhood, even though right now they were actually quite comfortably employed on average, small business owners, doctors, lawyers, teachers, school counselors, right? These were, you know, at least middle class, many of them, but they had had more than the other average person, maybe some of these experiences of precariousness that I would say made them more vulnerable to propaganda about something being stolen from them.
0: So this brings me to your, the key recommendation of your piece, which is Preventing violent extremism needs a public health approach. Tell me about that. I know that's rooted, in, that's not so new, but it's and it's rooted in some real science and social science, but it really makes sense given what you just said. So can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, well, it, you know, if you think about one, some of the greatest advances that have been made in the treatment of diseases like cardiac disease or diabetes over the years... Are not just in the diagnosis and treatment of those diseases once they are evident in a in a person's body, but have been actually in the investments, deep investments made across the board, across the country in every virtually every community. If you just Google diabetes classes, diabetes prevention, you're gonna get a dozen class, you know, you can go to the YMCA, you can go to your local hospital, there's healthy heart classes, every you know, employer probably offers them because we have learned that actually you can teach people about some of the behavioral and attitudinal choices that they can make that might reduce their vulnerability and susceptibility to disease later in life down the road. So it's interrupting at a much earlier stage to teach people in ways that, you know, don't infringe on their rights. Everybody has the right to eat whatever they want, but try to educate people about um, what are the choices and what are the kinds of Habits that might lead them to be less vulnerable. And you can do the same thing with digital literacy and media literacy and teach people about source integrity and teach people about persuasive tactics and propaganda, the way that conspiracy theories work. It turns out there's a pretty clear scaffold for most conspiracy theories. And you know, there's always a cabal of elites who are trying to uh, nefariously work to seize power, right? Once you start to recognize those scaffolds, turns out you can recognize that conspiracy for what it is. And people turn out, as we know from evidence, to be less vulnerable to it later and less sympathetic to the ideologies that promote them.
0: Is this an approach you think that could actually generate some bipartisan support
1: I would hope so. And here's a couple of reasons why I'm hopeful about it. I don't know, because we're in a really tough climate for anything bipartisan. Um, But I think in the long run, it's not ideological, right? We're not talking about counter messaging. We're talking about equipping people with the tools to make their own decisions, to be less persuaded by savvy marketing and propaganda techniques from extremist groups that often come right into their lives, even though they didn't go look for them it's about protecting people by better equipping them with information and with the tools to be more literate and safer about what they engage with and what content they share online to be savvier consumers and i think that i think that there is a hunger and a recognition of the many-faceted dangers of online worlds of which this is just one and realizing that we do need better tools as a society to be savvier to be smarter to recognize disinformation and to counter some of this with with education and ultimately i would argue prevent the big bubble from ending up in the law enforcement the carceral approaches the securitized approaches which you know flood prisons you know do take once something rises to the level of criminal activity of course you have to focus on accountability and investigations but that lends many, many millions of more investigations and need for more barriers and checkpoints on the bridges around the inaugurations and the investments in security that come because of the threats that went unchecked that could have been prevented i think at much earlier stages so it's it's sound fiscally It makes sense in terms of consumer protection and citizen protection, and it's not ideological per se. It should protect you against any form of disinformation or propaganda across the ideological spectrum. And the other thing I'll say is that we already have evidence from other countries which pursue this approach in much greater depth that it can be effective and that there's, you know, we have research studies here, but decades of work in the public health space and encountering terrorism work that shows that it works from my colleagues, Kirk Braddock and others, and some of the studies that we've done in my lab. But it's also, I would say, the predominant approach taken in places like Germany, where the post-World War II approach is called defensive democracy. The idea is that there will always be fringe groups that are producing propaganda. And you have to tackle those fringe groups, but you also have to increase the resilience of the mainstream against those groups. And you have to defend democracy from within, not just by isolating the bad cells, but by strengthening the resilience of everybody in the mainstream against them.
0: And isn't part of the problem that it's not just radicalized cells, but there's, you know, political parties flooding the zone with, you know, misinformation, disinformation, you know, all kinds of propaganda that really stoked up January 6th.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of the problem here is that we have Propaganda and disinformation that's being promoted by elected officials, that's being promoted on mainstream media, that is being reinforced on mainstream media with echoes of the Great Replacement or use of words like invasion or, you know, threatening language referring to entire populations overseas as rapists or invaders like those kinds of of xenophobic and hateful expressions really add tremendous harm, both in legitimizing and normalizing some of these ideas, but also because these are coming from sources that people are supposed to trust as the sources of information, as the legitimate sources of information. So, you know, part of what I would say is that the strategy, this public health strategy, is not a quick fix, right? It's not... You know, we obviously, one, we have to focus on accountability right now from January 6th. That's a whole strategy in itself. And there's also a short-term need to address issues of what I would call even disengagement and de-radicalization for the millions of people who still believe, despite all evidence to the contrary, that the election was invalid, who say, as large percentages of, of Americans, especially Republicans, unfortunately say that... They will not accept the results of the 2024 election if their candidate loses. So we have, you know, we have serious problems with trust in the electoral system. All of those things have to be addressed. It's going to be a multifaceted problem. I think my point is we also have to focus on the medium and long term problems by starting to invest right now in, you know, in starting to course correct the kinds of things that landed us on the list of backsliding democracies late last year. Because when you look at the data about what happens once a country gets added to that list of backsliding democracies, it's about nine years that that countries stay on that list before they either go one way or the other. They either collapse or they're restored and get back off the list. And so it's not an immediate—you know—you don't get added to the list of backsliding democracies and collapse next year into you know, not becoming a democracy anymore um, into authoritarian rule. But it's a major red flag, and it's a, it's a wake-up call to invest in some longer-term solutions to strengthen democracy from within.
0: Well, what do you think that the events of January 6th reveal about the state of our U.S. democracy right now?
1: I think that the events of January 6th revealed that millions of people are really susceptible to disinformation campaigns that those disinformation campaigns can mobilize them to violence even when they have never been violent before and maybe had no intention of being violent, and in fact, some of them expressed tremendous shame later at having been violent, so that mobilization was rapid, it was spontaneous in some cases and incredibly dangerous and I think in many ways we avoided far worse outcomes on that day that could have happened in that kind of rioting and mob mentality so I think that we, for a long time as a country, generally think of ourselves. You know, we use the phrase "beacon of democracy" a lot, and I think it was a, a real wake-up call to people that we are just as fragile as any other place as a democracy, and and that you can't just defend democracy with force. It also has to be nurtured, you know, through education, through investments in resilience building, and in cultivating the kind of norms and practices. And critical thinking skills and digital literacy and media skills to allow people to continue to make informed choices and not just be kind of passive recipients of information that is patently untrue and clearly can mobilize them to violence. So for me, it was really not just a story about extremism, but a story about democracy and its fragility.
0: At what age do you think the media literacy on this needs to kick in? Is it high school? Is it before high school, college?
1: Yeah, I would kick in earlier. We have a digital communications curriculum in most schools in elementary school. And, you know, there's age appropriate ways to teach it. But in elementary school, starting in fourth or fifth grade in most places, kids are taught about privacy online. They're taught about predators. They're taught about being a good digital citizen, right? Not to bully others, not to harass, right? So so these are skills and things that are being taught that we're not taught 10 years ago that we have created and introduced because of a need and we recognize problems in the ecosystems online that affect kids with in ways that we know bring on tremendous depression, anxiety, high suicide rates, of, you know, because of social media bullying and all kinds of things. So they have introduced curriculum in most schools to try to preemptively address that. But kids get very little or nothing about propaganda. Conspiracy theories, disinformation, even source integrity, possibly until much later. Maybe in high school, some colleges will do it as part of you know, libraries, of course, worrying about digital literacy and source integrity, but it's not systematic. Pre-service teachers are not really being trained to deal with it or to deal with what happens in the classroom when false claims come up. As a college faculty member, I can say we're not trained to deal with it either. And so you're kind of left very much on your own as a teacher to grapple with these things in the classroom, much less as a student starting to navigate online worlds for the first time. And, you know, but we obviously need it for adults, too. And that gets back to the average age of the January 6 folks is that, you know, it was a much older population than we typically see in violent, political violent episodes or extremist episodes of violence. Where we have long thought of the risk factors, and in fact, statistically, the risk factors are are youth, you know, up to the age of 25, 30, something like that. But um, this was a much older population. These were parents. There's some grandparents wandering around there, you know, well-established, middle-aged folks. And clearly, there's a need to have a different kind of public literacy, media literacy campaign that can reach those folks outside of formal schooling.
0: You know, it's interesting. I, I've said for a long time at CSIS that we need to teach about fake news and misinformation and disinformation at an age appropriate level going all the way to, back to when, you know, children start to read. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot in my, the class I teach at Tulane University as well. I really hope that people, governments, you know, state, local, take you up on these recommendations. Another point that you've raised in your research Has been about the role of women and the increasing role of women that are involved with right wing extremism. Tell us about that research and and what that tells us about the current state.
1: Yeah, this is really interesting. And it's not unrelated to the January 6th issue either. I mean,
0: several women on January 6th died.
1: Yeah, several women died about. I would say something like 13% of the arrests were women. And that's about double what we had seen over the last 50 years, a little more than double in terms of women's engagement in violent and nonviolent far-right movements. So, you know, there's a real shift. and that's And it's not just in the U.S., it's globally. So I had written an op-ed a few years ago for The Guardian with a colleague in the U.K. about women's rising engagement in far-right extremism. And then here we are three years later, you know, kind of seeing the same thing. And there you were seeing it in Europe among political parties, of course, because uh, you know, in many European countries there are actual political parties because of a parliamentary system that represent far-right extremist and anti-immigrant positions. So there are a lot of women leading and playing leadership roles in unusual ways there. But even among violent and even terrorist actors, we have seen more women engaged. So there are a couple of different explanations. I mean, one, on the January 6th situation, I would suspect that most of this is attributable to both the fact that there were a lot of ordinary Trump voters there, and a majority of white women voted for Trump both in the 2016 and 2020 elections, but also there were a lot of QAnon supporters there. And women have been drawn into the QAnon conspiracy umbrella in really unusual numbers and unusual ways, including being responsible for violent action on behalf of that conspiracy theory, often through alternative medicine communities, yoga studios, wellness worlds uh, that opened up a whole pathway uh, for many women into these conspiracies because there was already a kind of distrust of information. And some of those women were clearly there just based on the signs being waved and the the symbols that you saw on January 6th. So the, and then the other thing I'll say is that women have really shifted their engagement in far-right extremist scenes, especially in white supremacist extremist scenes over the past few years, because of how the online ecosystem kind of creates a whole new set of spaces where they can do that. So in the past, you know, most of these spaces in physical life were not very hospitable to women. There was a lot of misogyny, harassment, even assault, you know, uncomfortable places. And when you hear women who had been in those movements talk about leaving, they often talk about it. the misogyny is what drove them away. And so, In the online space, when women run a YouTube show or, you know, can do an Instagram or social media posts that are very image rich and fit with other aesthetic and parts of their lives, it opens up, oddly enough, and ironically sort of empowers them to become different kinds of leaders who can recruit other women. So that's part of the, you know, the the dangerous and difficult side of online spaces is, is that it has enabled that.
0: Dr. Miliedras, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for helping us begin to get to the truth of the matter about this complex set of issues. I'm sure we're going to invite you back to talk about it more as we move along. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us.
1: Well, thanks for having me. And uh, as much as I'd be happy to come back, it's my most fervent hope that the research becomes irrelevant and is not, <laughs> yeah. uh, n- not needed anymore, so, uh, so may, may it be less relevant and less important.
0: Here's to that. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to
0: see our full catalog,